Welcome to another Dragonlance Saga review episode. It is Bakukul Holmeswealth II. My name is Adam, and today I'm going to give you my review of the Kinslayer Wars by Douglas Niles. Now, I will be spoiling this story, so if you don't want to know it, stop watching now. Also, uh, I'd like to invite you to become a member if you're not already a member of this YouTube channel. <laughs> um, all of your dreams will come true. If you become, that's not true. No dreams will come true, unless your dream, of course, is to become a member. Um, you can also pick up Dragonlance Game Materials uh, using the affiliate links. And that just gets my beak wet a little bit. You know, helps the channel out just a little bit if you get it through the link. And if not, that's okay too, because I'm going to still do this. It's just, uh, you know, it's like a compulsion at this point. <laughs> I think is a fair way to describe it. All right, so uh, this again is my perspective only. So if it differs from yours, let me know. I would love to hear what other people have to say, the, how they perceive these novels, how they view characters and character behavior and world events, etc. If you're joining us live, welcome. You can put it in the live chat. And if you're watching this after the fact, that's okay too. Just put it in the comments and uh, we'll have a good time. So the way these reviews work, <clears throat> pardon me, I have a pre-written review, which I'm going to read through. And then I'll just riff. So if you are joining live and you have a comment, you throw it up there in the chat, then I'll just sort of bounce off that for a little bit. And I'll be here as long as you guys want to be here. I mean, within bounds of reason. <laughs> it is Friday. I mean, I only have a couple things to do after this. So, you know, we can, we can have some fun. So let's have some fun. And let's start with the written review here. The first part of this novel deals directly with the war between Ergoth and Sylvanesty. The Emperor of Aragoth is a sadistic monster of a ruler who tortures and murders his own men who fail to live up to his expectations. His niece, Suzine des Quivelin, is in a relationship with one of the generals of the Emperor's army, traveling south to war with the elves. General Zalthan, General Barnett, and General Giarna are leading separate forces. We pick up with Kith Cannon, who is confident in how the war is proceeding, after having defeated many of the forces placed in front of him already. But when he faces General Giarna, he is stunned at how brutal and effective his forces are. They face off against the Wild Runners and the army from Sylvanost and decimate the elves. With Kith, when Kith Cannon um, is taken prisoner, it's revealed that the general's woman, Suzine, is seeing events through a magical mirror and has become infatuated with Kith Cannon. She wants to know more about him, and as he breaks out of his captivity due to her aid, he thanks her for keeping his identity a secret, which she does. Now, she is, at this point, pretty smitten with him. And, of course, she knows nothing about him other than he is the other general of this war, the opposing general. And again, she's related to the Emperor, and so she has a vested interest in Ergoth winning. But for whatever reason, passions broiling within her, she really uh, she digs Kith. I mean, look at him. He's a cool-looking dude, <laughs> thanks to Brom. All right, so he returns to Sithelbeck Fortress, where the Ergothian army lays a prolonged siege, with no side coming on top. Faced with insurmountable odds, Kith reaches out to his brother, Sith, for aid. Sithas. But he has his own issues to deal with. Sithas does not want to scare the public and risk losing their support in the war when they realize the true toll this war is taking on their sons and daughters. You know, we saw this in the Afghanistan war and the war in Iraq and stuff like that. So thousands have died and more are expected to follow. He's trying to find a diplomatic way around sending new troops 
all compounded by the dwarves' new diplomat, a Thiwar dwarf named Thancar. He is secretly in league with the Argothian Emperor and preventing any support from Thorbarden for the elves. And this is after they had already secured aid in the last book. Hermathia is pregnant and has been much more loving towards Sethas, who has responded in kind. He brought more of her family into the palace to aid in the war effort, and this brings her immense joy. Sethas's mother, however, Nirakina, does not trust Hermathia or her family. She has secretly sent an ambassador to Thorbarden to discover why they won't help with the war that they'd already pledged to help with um, through Dunbarth Ironthumb. She's counseling her son to bring Kith home to plan out the war. Now, Seath, uh, Sith is more than happy to do so, and so he sends Kith's griffin to collect him. Kith leaves Sithelbeck and flies home after stopping by Anaya, the now great tree in the Wildwood, his second love. He realizes that he still has feelings for her, Matthiah, and this red-headed human woman, Suzine, the one that let him go. This is a great beginning to the novel, and it sets up a desperate situation that the elves are in wonderfully. I can't help but feel like they deserve it in some way, because, you know, let's face it, they've embraced slavery almost as a virtue at this point. Uh, but they're meant to be the good guys in the novel in some respect, at least Kith Cannon is. So I appreciate the brutality of the Argothian army and the effectiveness in battle that General Giarni has displayed thus far. It makes for a wonderful conflict setting. And this is a great, massive war. Now, if you think about Ergoth in this era of time, this is before the Cataclysm by thousands of years. This is before Istar. Ergoth was the empire. It ruled all of northern Ancelon, all the way down into the majority of southern Ancelon, and Abyssinia, and all through what we now know as the Plains of Dust and stuff. I mean, they owned and ran almost the entire world. Sylvanesty is just trying to maintain their own small nation. That's it. But they have resources that Ergoth needs. And so Ergoth wants to push in. I mean, you could do a whole political military campaign style lesson, like college course on just this conflict, if you really wanted to dive into it. And that's why I find it so incredibly interesting. Because as a kid reading this story, I was just like, oh, Kip Cannon, he's a really cool warrior. This is awesome. You know, I didn't really think about the world events surrounding it. And I certainly didn't understand why Sethas, the speaker of, for Sylvanesty, was having such a hard time rebuking slavery and just allowing other races into his home. We, you know, you don't really get into that xenophobic mindset unless either you're taught it culturally or you're presented it as an adult and then you understand the concepts of, of hate and bigotry for literally no other reason except for they are different than us. And that's what the elves have embraced. It's pretty crazy. All right, so... Um, Kith's feelings for Hermathia are puzzling and in stark contrast to the first novel. He was over her in the last novel, and though absence does in fact make the heart grow fonder, it only does for those you've already affection for. So this seems a needless wedge to be ham-fisted later on, and honestly doesn't hold up to the bond that the brothers share later in book two of this novel. So as Kith arrives, the locals and royalty are thrilled. He realizes that his mother is isolated and alone and takes time to spend with her. It actually made me reflect 
on my own mother and how I've kept her largely out of my life due to turmoil in my own youth. But Kith steps up and confronts, uh, connects with her. He immediately lifts her spirits and uh, they go on an awesome horse ride together. They just spend a lot of time together. All of this is compounded by the fact that they have to travel weeks to months to get to and from the battlefield. And everyone over in Sithelbeck, the sieged fortress, is waiting for a reply. And so as a reader, you're sitting here wondering, well, why the hell are they waiting to send reinforcements? Why are they having all these conversations? It took so long to get to Savenesty. Why are they then going to spend so much more time exploring other options rather than just sending troops to the front? Like you need reinforcements up there. If I was sitting in that Sithobeck fortress, I'd be pissed. Like, why are you guys going on horseback rides? Come help us. We need troops. Um, all right, so Sith, uh, Sithas is eager to get Kith Cannon's reports and help formulate a plan. And Kith is introduced uh, to their new baby, Venesti, the speaker's son. They take a long uh, talk into the night and come up with an idea of bonding with griffins, like Kith Cannon did with Archibalus. Now, this is not something that has happened as of yet, and it's nice to see the beginning of the Griffin-Elven connection. Vedvedsika appears mysteriously again and claims that he can help by making a spell that will compel the Griffins to listen to the speaker. But this will require both the speaker and Kith Cannon to go in search of the Griffins in the Calchist Mountains in the north. Hermathia sleeps with Kith, and Kith feels obviously regret, but he still went along with it. So I don't really feel sorry for him at all. And this came out of nowhere. Like he ordered food to be brought to his room, room service. It's brought to the room. Hermathia, like a freaking black widow, is waiting at the door for the food to show up. As soon as it arrives, she takes it from the servant and comes in and feeds it to him or presents it to him and then just dives in bed and passions take hold. It also, filled for, uh, um, it also forces me to question, the st this is going to sound weird, but I did think this, the strength of the elven vagina. Like, again, bear with me just for a second. Yeah, women are suggested normally, generally, to refrain from sex after having a baby for like six weeks on average. Like, I, you know, we've had two, my wife delivered two kids, but we've had two kids together. And there's always a time after birth where the vagina is healing and you have to leave it the hell alone. And they just had their kid. And elves take longer to do everything. They take longer to mature. They take longer to age. They take longer to do literally everything. Why would that be the one area that heals faster than humans? It doesn't matter. It doesn't change anything. And really, I don't know that anyone else would ever even consider it except for me. But it is something that popped in my head when I was reading. I was just like, huh. All right. Well, good for her. Anyway, um, she's a tough cookie, that one. So the brothers share their plan of gathering the Griffins to use as mounts to defeat the Argothian army. And they fly out on Archibalus's back. The journey ends up taking months and forms a bond between Sith and Kith that hasn't been there since their youths, if ever, to this degree. They get ambushed by hill giants, and Kith Cannon is seriously wounded. 
Winter snow sets into the mountains and Archibalus is missing after that hill giant encounter, seemingly killed. Sith is frantically trying to keep the two of them alive as Kith is unconscious and seriously wounded, and he ends up finally being able to catch a goat after like a week or so. Um, even after weeks of healing, Kith Cannon still can't stand on his leg. It's that bad. So Kith Cannon is completely useless, and Seathas goes off to explore, trying to find not just food, but also these griffins, because it's literally at this point their only way off the mountain. However, as he's out exploring, he sees hill giants hunting the both of them, and they're getting really close to Kith Cannon. So he causes an avalanche, which kills the hill giants, all except for one who he then confronts. This hill giant's name is One Tooth, because he has one tooth. <laughs> so it makes sense. <laughs> this hill giant ends up becoming their friend, learns to communicate with them in Elvish, no less, and uh, just becomes super buddy-buddy with Kith because he spends weeks upon months with Kith Cannon, isolated and alone, while Seathass is out searching for the griffins in all directions. So uh, he returns to the camp with the herd. I'm sorry. I skipped ahead. Um, Seathas is still trying to locate the griffins, and he finally finds them and learns that Archibalus is actually with them as well. He returns to the camp with the herd, and Kith and One Tooth are fighting off dire wolves. It turns out that the hill giants were trying to kill the elves, but they kept Archibalus to heal him. Then he was let go and rejoined his herd that he was taken from in his youth. By Vedvedsika, by the way. I love how the hill giants aren't monsters in this. They're just mortal beings who protect their territory, but care for the animals around them just like every other mortal on Kryn. It humanizes them in a necessary way that forces the reader and potential role player to rethink creatures' behaviors and lifestyles, potentially bringing the new perspective to the gaming table itself. And this is further proof, in my opinion, that Douglas, Douglas Niles is a, a wonderful storyteller. Okay. So the giant was sad to see them go, and the return to home was welcomed for the elves. They were met with excitement and a massive feast. They learned of dissenters who were imprisoned. Seathas uh, was happy that they were imprisoned, and Kith Cannon thought that they should have been questioned, not just imprisoned. Dissent may be because of fear, not necessarily because of treason. Clan Oakleaf, her Matthias family, has been enslaving prisoners in their minds, very convenient, Elven and human alike, treating them both cruelly. Finally, Tamanir returns from his secret mission to Thorbarden, confirming the duplicity of the Thiwar ambassador and the sending of troops to be led by Dunbar Iron Thumb himself. Kith is thrilled to see his old friend again and flies to meet the army en route to Sithelbeck to discuss plans for the attack. Hermathia meets him before he leaves to once again connect, and Kith rebuffs her. This is a story we've seen way too many times, and at this point, I just find it unbelievable. There's no possible way that you could be so enamored with this woman that she could seduce you in your own bed, mid-war, mind you. Like, there's tons of other things on his mind. Like, she's just so alluring. Her scent is so magical that he just he finds himself helpless against it. I have never met one man who has ever reacted to another man or woman in that way. Not one. If you go through a bad breakup, 
it takes a while to happen, as it did with him, but you move on afterward. You don't come back for one fling and then get right back to the rejection phase. You're just in full rejection mode or you give it another shot. In this particular case, they couldn't for obvious reasons. And I just don't buy that Kit Cannon would just sleep with his brother's wife because he had a heart on. Like I just, I, in my head, I cannot accept that. Not with what we've been presented with his character. I definitely believe Hermathia wants to because she is miserable, but not Kith Cannon. Anyway, Kith finds the Dwarven force and they make their plans then to fly to Sithilbeck. The Enchantress Suzine senses Kith's approach and is elated, only to be drawn back to sorrow and horror as General Gyarna enters and forces himself on her. Again, I, I mean, I, I realize that they're mirroring reality in eras that can be compared to this type of situation, you know, sort of a medieval-ish fantasy. But I do get tired of the rape trope. Like, it's just, I don't, I don't know. Like, in every book we have to address it, like, can't we just have one novel where someone doesn't get raped? Is that too much to ask? All right. He seems to draw some form of magic as well, uh, or he seems to be some form of a magic user as well, as he's incredibly strong and can drain the life from his victims, restoring his vitality. And at this point, it's not explicitly stated how or why, but it does later on. So back in Sylvanost, Sethas goes to the Oakleaf Mines and is appalled by the treatment of the slaves, but doesn't do anything about it. This is the speaker. This is the nation's ruler who is aghast at the treatment of his wife's family to the natives and the visitors of Sylvanesty who are enslaved in their minds. Think Temple of Doom. Except that he was appalled by it. And he just kept his mouth shut. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. He just left and he let it happen. Silence is consent, people. <laughs> like, he is complicit in slavery. All right. He then makes a plan to conscript all of the slaves into their military and send them to Sithilbeck to reinforce the other troops. Then the troops that Kith would then capture, if he won would be sent back to be new slaves in the mines. This is how empires fall, people. By dehumanizing the other. Whether these others are different ethnicities, different religions, different gender identities, or different sexual preferences. When you stop recognizing the humanity in others, you stop being human yourself. This is why the Sylvanesty are truly evil and deserve everything that they have coming to them and more. We have examples throughout our own history of leaders inspiring men rather than enslaving them. And it breeds nations and ideals that are timeless. Stories like this remind me that we, even here at home, have a lot of work to do as a species. So back to the story, the Thiwar ambassador in Sylvanost has risen up against the elves, fighting their way to the docks in order to escape. They realize that they were actually silent prisoners when their spies were killed. Sethas leads his forces against them, but some get away, including the ambassador dwarven, that the Dwarven King wanted. Back in Sithilbeck, Kith hatched his plan, and in early morning, the Elven Cavalry takes the human army by surprise and rides right through the encampment, killing every soldier in their way. 
They return to the fortress as the dwarves arrive on the battlefield and begin their attack. This puts the Argothian general in a rage, who then kills his Thiwar lieutenant and any messenger that comes with bad news. Now, I love how Kith trained the elves to be wind riders on the griffins, and I can't wait to see these griffins in battle. The description that Niles gives of the battle are amazing, and I desperately want a Game of Thrones-style series about this trilogy. It would give everyone something from romance to political danger to adventure, war, deceit, spies, conflicting admissions of who the good guy and bad guys are as you watch it. I mean, it has everything. It's great. So the final act of this novel is filled with war and family trauma. We learn that General Giarna made a pact with the many gods of evil for invulnerability, and if he drains the life of a creature, he is immune to any damage inflicted by that type of creature. This also allows him to retain his youth. Back to the battle, the Wind Riders are signaled and they enter the fray, decimating the cavalry and greater army. As they go through and decimate their Gothian forces, Gyarna enters Suzine's tent and realizes that she is, if not helping Kith, in love with him. He moves to kill her and Kith enters the tent. They end up fighting mano a mano, but Kith can't defeat him. So Suzine smashes her magical mirror over Giarna's head, which causes it to profusely bleed, causing him to then flee the tent. Suzine ends up taking care of Kith Cannon, who hasn't had uh, her out of his mind since their first meeting, when he was first captured, and they fall in love. <laughs> it's actually quite beautiful. As the Argothian forces flee into the woods in small bands, they adopt guerrilla tactics, making the routing of the army impossible for the elves. The war continues for 40 years like this. The Argothian army is splintered, but continues to gain new troops, and Gyarna continues to lead them, never aging. The Emperor of Ergoth ends up dying, and two more emperors are then put in place and die in the time that this war transpires. But the nation refuses to relent. The storms of the spring every single year are growing more and more erratic and worse, almost as if the gods themselves are lashing out at their creations for fighting. This war is not just between Ergoth and Sylvanesty at this point. This war is against elf versus elf, dwarf versus dwarf, and human versus human. And that is why it is aptly named the Kinslayer War. And the great shame to the speaker, who, again, doesn't understand why elves are fighting elves. Suzine is an old woman at this point, after 40 years. She refuses to accompany Kith Cannon into the capital as the elves treat her cruelly. She has given Kith two children, who are both spoiled and abrasive, half-elves of course. Though they are more accepted, they still suffer snide remarks from the Sylvanesty, because Sylvanesties are assholes. Kith's nephew begs to be a squire, which Kith accepts, and Hermathia is furious that Sethas would let Kith Cannon take their son to Sithobek Fortress during the war. She tells Sethas about her affair with Kith Cannon, but she twists it, saying that Kith Cannon came to her room rather than the truth. This widens the existing divide between the brothers to an insurmountable size. Suzine uses her newly reformed magical mirror to look into Kith Cannon's mind and sees that his continued affection for her Mathiah. Again, I call bullshit. This doesn't make any sense. First of all, if you accept the idea that he had a fling with her 40 years ago, okay, like, 
he went against his brother, he slept with his brother's wife, even if it was her doing all the heavy lifting, still he went along with it, he's a piece of shit for doing that. But 40 years later, he's still fantasizing about her? He's been married to a woman who he has his closest confidant, a life partner, literally watched her grow old with him. And he's still thinking about Hermathia? What does this Hermathia look like? It doesn't make any sense. She must have like a magical... I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to say what it is, but it must be magical <laughs> in order to have him constantly going back to her and thinking about her. So anyway, she gets pissed and she realizes I'm an old woman. I can't compete with an elf in youth. Kith Cannon is going to be youthful for hundreds of years after I've already died. I can do one thing that he could not, and I'm going to go and kill Gyarna. So she goes directly and confronts Gyarna herself. When she gets to his camp, she tries to stab him in the neck, but because he's invulnerable to human attacks, nothing happens. So he threatens to torture her for the military information that she does in fact have about the elven movements and the plans that they have. And so instead of having to go through the torture, which she knows she will eventually spill the beans because no one can withstand torture forever, she kills herself. She's already old. She's already in despair. She doesn't want to betray her husband or the elven secrets. And so her last desperate act is to save their military plans. And she ends her life. Meanwhile, One Tooth, the hill giant, he's not out of the story yet, people, feels compelled for no apparent reason. I personally believe it's because the gods of good are compelling him, but it's never clarified, to leave his village. And so he like rounds up all, he's the leader of the village at this point, rounds up all of his hill giant wives and tells them he's leaving, packs his bag and heads off into the sunset. Now the storms, um, he, he has no idea where he's going to. That's the greatest part. Only that he needs to get there for some reason. So he has to be compelled by the gods, right? So the storms are continuing to punish the land and the army of Ergoth travels to Sithlebeck as the army of Sylvanesty is traveling to where they believe the Ergoth army was. They pass each other through the storms and as they pass, the small bands of each other who see, because again, it's like tornadoes and just massive dark skies and storms and lightning strikes and it's like crazy. Um, they have little skirmishes and stuff, but the mass main forces don't have a clue that the other forces are fighting because of the sound of the rain and the hail and the sleet and the storms and the lightning and the thunder and the tornadoes and all that shit. It's crazy. Um, I'm sorry, I just lost my place. They pass each other in a storm and small bands attack each other. Eventually, Gyarna and Kithcanon meet in the storm and in the darkness. Gyarna is toying with Kith Cannon during this fight, killing every elf that gets between them, even severing his nephew, Vis uh, Vinesti's spine, the speaker's son, before trapping Kith Cannon between some trees. And that's when One Tooth attacks. He comes upon the two fighting, recognizes Kith Cannon, and uses his massive club, crushes the skull of Gyarna, and it's over like that. I mean, it, I would feel like it wasn't satisfying, except it is wildly satisfying. No one has been able to stop Gyarna. For 40 years, this human has been torturing and tormenting not just the elven army, but his own forces. And to see him get his own, mm, it's great. So, the giant traveled across the plains to save his old friends, compelled by unknown forces. 
This actually hit me pretty hard, as the gods are content to let Sylvanesty and Ergoth suffer an endless war, but Kith Cannon, who accepts others for who they are, is worth intervening for. And the nation of Quilinesty that he will found is worth intervening for. The gods see the true nobility and goodness in Kith Cannon and his cause and save him. But the storm does what the Argothian army couldn't, and it destroys the fortress at Sithelbeck. Sethas travels to the ruins and tells Kith Cannon that he can have the land that he's fought over for the past 40 years. And Kith Cannon's thinking, okay, well, I'm going to build a capital called Quilinesty, but he doesn't tell his brother that yet. But he knows that their relationship is ostensibly over. Like, Sethas doesn't want to admit that he knows that he slept with Hermathiah, and Kith Cannon doesn't want to admit that he wants to build another welcoming elven nation. So they're just completely at odds. Which is strange, because if Kith... If Sithas actually did have a problem with slavery, even though he let it continue, he just hated, he didn't, he clutching his pearls watching it, I feel like he could be convinced to stop it and open the borders and stop being xenophobic. Like, the seed is there. Why not just work at it? Let it grow. Water it. <laughs> you know? Whatever. All right, so they can barely look at each other at this point. Kith has lost every love he has ever known up until now. And now he lost his brother too. I want to see the torment within Kith Cannon. We're also not told what happens to One Tooth. I would like to imagine that he lives with Kith Cannon and they grow old together telling stories and drinking by the fire at night. Like, in my head, Cannon, that's a good ending to a good story, you know? They bonded up in the mountain, the Calchas Mountains together over months and months and months. They had each other's back fighting dire wolves and fighting uh, starvation. They taught each other language. They fought together. They're brothers in arms. One tooth crossed nations to save Kith Cannon. And they don't even mention what happened to him. Like, what the, what the crap, man? <laughs> kind of messed up. Anyway, this novel filled me with, I'm sorry, this novel is filled with pain and anguish like war in our world. It's also about the destruction of relationships on the personal scale and on the national scale. The bitterness between the ruling class and the citizens they rule over. And ultimately, how in the desire of national purity, no matter who you are, it can only lead to evil itself. Because there's no such thing as purity. We're all here due to random chaos and chance. Any border that we draw or fight over is entirely fictional, created by us. And the only thing that actually matters is how we treat each other, how we choose to have loved ones and friends and the basic respect that we have for each other. Our fellow mortals who are sharing their lives on this rock as it hurls through space. Kith Cannon learned this lesson through his own life experience. Hell, most of us do. It's the dream that anyone who has lost someone for senseless reasons or has been bullied or brutalized simply because they're different understands. And anyway, that is my review of The Kinslayer Wars by Douglas Niles. How do you feel about Giarna's invulnerability? Was One Tooth used just to protect Kith Cannon? And finally, would you watch a series of this trilogy? Ugh. I want it so bad. 
You can always let me know in the comments below, or you can shoot me an email, info at dlsaga.com. Uh, all right, Chris, how you doing? Thanks for joining live. And everyone else watching, why didn't you say anything? Man, no comments at all. Was it my vagina comment that shut everyone up? Uh, you make you feel like you're not the weird one when you also think of stuff like that. <laughs> in your homebrew campaign with your son, one of the characters just cast the D&D talk to dead spells from the movie. So my son is actually going to talk to Kiff Cannon this week. Oh, that's cool. Hey, Deathman. You like to be quiet. Eh, respect. Ryan, what up? Yeah, this is a, such a great series. The thing is, I remember really enjoying this when I first read it as a kid borrowing it from the library but reading it now there is so much more adult context that i completely missed as a little kid like i got the brother slept with the brother's wife stuff like that i didn't ever consider Seathas's real political and diplomatic issues of trying to get his nation to back him in this continuing war for over 40 years a war that seemingly has no end and their sons and their daughters are dying every time they're sent over there from every house whether they're noble or common everyone is dying for this war and you have to start to question well at what point is this war still worth fighting we were in afghanistan for over a decade and i mean was it was it 20 years or more that we were in afghanistan and we were tired of that double that I mean, it's insane. Uh, you miss having nearly an entire god dang collection. <laughs> what happened to him, man? Oh, no. Let's see. Uh, it's great to have him to talk about it. Nostalgia's hitting you hard. Oh, that's great. I love that. So underrated. Need to revisit it. Yeah, Ryan, you definitely do. I think everyone should revisit this trilogy because anyone who says that they didn't like it, I argue maybe you didn't fully understand it from an adult mindset and you just didn't like it as a kid because it didn't address the companions or, you know, the era of the War of the Lance that you so desperately loved. All of us did. But this is an era that is arguably before anyone, you know, what happens here affects how we know the world later on. And that's why on that level, it's interesting because it informs what the world will become. But also, it's this huge wartime drama that is so beautifully written and illustrated from an adult perspective that I think is just hard for kids to fully grasp. And maybe I'm putting too much into it because I personally enjoyed it, but I'm seeing it in a whole different way as an adult than I did as a kid. And I would argue other people probably do too. Oh, you owned over 50 books. Oh man. You were in Afghanistan with the Royal Marines. Oh, well, thanks for the service, Ryan. I appreciate you, man. Um, yeah, that shit's no joke. I mean, most of war is boring as shit until it's not. And then it's just mad chaos. So, you know, respect for anyone that has to go through that. Um, all right. I, I almost would rather have this as a series than the Chronicles trilogy. 100% being honest. Because this deals more with adult, or this <laughs> deals more with adult situations than the Chronicles ever did like infinitely more and i'm only two books out of the three in so I, I i really do think this this could be a book that would draw in every game of thrones and house of the dragon fan it would draw in tons of other fantasy fans 
from an adult level so that it could kids will watch it because it's fantasy adults will watch it because of the themes and the drama and the war and everything i mean it would just be a wonderful wonderful exploration of what it means to be a species that's just trying to preserve their own sense of identity meanwhile that's being threatened by the incursion and just the natural intermingling of other species and it would give us a little bit of context into how our own behavior is affecting or, or how we are affecting through our perceptions the rest of the world i mean the reality is is you can look at elves as each different independent nation just like humans we have our different nations on our world or you could see it as each race is its own different nation and reflect that in our own world where each nation could be personified as its own race and so you can contextualize the conflict that happens in this trilogy in those different ways but it's so wildly interesting when you start to take a step back and see well, wait a second this is a kinslayer war so you have Thiwar and Daywar dwarves fighting Hylar dwarves um, and Klar dwarves and stuff. You have uh, Ergothian humans fighting uh, barbaric, you know, plainsmen. You have uh, wild elves, Kiganesty, fighting the xenophobic and the enslaving Sylvanesty elves. So you literally have brothers fighting. It's very similar to our own Revolutionary War in the U.S., where we had Britain fighting the new colonial armies of, you know, the sort of separated from Britain armies aided by France, uh, by and large, the only reason why we won that war, by the way. Um, and so it's, it's literally not two nations. These are families. These are brothers because the battle lines didn't begin and end between the nation boundaries. Those battle lines were your neighbors who sided with the British or your neighbors who sided with the colonialists. And so you can immediately make these connections that we as our own history have gone through in this story and the difficulty and what it means to betray your own family, not because you hate them, but because you don't agree with the ideals of xenophobia and slavery. You don't agree with their political ideals of shooting other people down in order to rise yourself up. You know, Kith Cannon, the whole premise of his character is that I don't have to step on someone to be the best version of me. I can just be the best version of me. And this other Sylvanesty, his brother specifically, Seathas, is saying, no, 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 the only way we can be better is by crushing other people. And when you start to think in terms of political machinations like that, you really start to question, well, wait a second, if this is how it's in the story, what if I applied that same logic to my own life and my own political leanings? How am I contextualizing and how am I making the choices that I'm making politically? It's an interesting discussion to have. It may not change anything, and I'm not saying it should, but just to have that type of an inter inner dialogue it really helps you understand how you think and why you think the way you do. No matter where you fall politically, I think it's interesting. Uh, you think Dragonlance series? Hey, Angel, thanks for joining live, by the way. 
Um, should have episodes set in different eras, different writers and directors, each with a different tone. Oh, gosh, if they could do that, that would be amazing. A Gothian or somewhat Anselon cringe Germanic tribes. Yeah, I always... Um, you could definitely... You could definitely... I, I always saw them as Roman. You know, like the Roman Empire, they swept all across Europe. They had their little um, installations in different nations in order to sort of look after the local peoples and sort of control the the governments. But they were just spread all over. That's kind of how I think of Aragoth personally, because they were spread all over Ancelon. It was insane when you think about how much land they controlled. And clearly that's why they had such huge resources. I'm sure they were conscripting natives. You know, they were going to all through Salamnia, all through Estwild, all through... Um, uh, Abanasinia just forcing people to fight for them. You know, any criminal, oh, you're a soldier now, go down to war. You know, so it, it's just those type of empires always fail because they spread too thin. And that's where the, the, the seeds of, of um, um, all right, well, I can't think of the damn phrase I was going to use. But anyway, they start to deteriorate from the inside out. All wars are either ethnic or economic in origin. Um, well, I mean, I would argue a lot of it is also environmental, you know, fighting over resources is a real, real issue. And that's what this war, the Kinsler War, started as. They're fighting over resources. Ergoth was searching for lumber. Sylvanesty is lumber. <laughs> you know, it's like a big tree farm. So let's go take the trees. Unrest, rebellion, etc. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting to me. I, I hope it is to other people, but I, I don't know. I don't want to extrapolate my own sensibilities to others. Ergoth is a fallen empire, so they probably helped him from the form the Salamnia language. Oh, for sure. I mean, Salamnia formed out of empire of, of Ergoth. You know, the, the whole, what is it? The, the Night of Frozen Tears or something like that. When Vinus Salamnus went in and sued for peace with the emperor and then broke Salamnia off. I mean... You know that they had a shared language that Ergothian Empire must have had in all of their outposts, you know, Ergothian language all throughout, which probably is, if not a derivative, or if not, if, which probably is that Salamni is either a derivative of Ergoth language, or it's just literally the exact same tongue. They just renamed it because of the nation which persisted, you know, into the future more. So, I don't know. I think it's really interesting, this stuff. Do you guys? <laughs> Am I the only one? All right. I got to go spend some time with the family. You guys have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks for tuning in live. They had to feel the Eastern and Western Roman Empire. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. I'd like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click the like button. This all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. And of course, this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance Saga. Thank you so much for joining in the celebration. Once again, my name's Adam with Dragonlance Saga, and until next time, Slange Bar. You don't have to love your neighbor, just don't stab them in the face.